continue on this morning in our Deconstructed Church series, we're focusing on what's in a name. And as we get started, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to know that some of what I'm about to share with you is from an article that's titled, What Do You Mean Restoration Movement? It was written by Robert Mallett for a restoration website called the CRA.org. So you can go back, and if you happen to stumble across this one day, I didn't write it. I borrowed it, and thank you to Mr. Robert Mallett because it really helps put this whole focal point for today right where I think it should be. So as I share with you what I'm about to share, I want you to keep in mind that sometimes before we can restore something, we have to deconstruct it. Uh, Webster defines the word restore as to bring back to its original condition. So I want you to think about something for a second. Just kind of close your eyes and, and suppose that you just bought an old, run-down, dilapidated house because you're, you're a fixer-upper kind of person. And, and so just picture your dream house, only not yet dream house worthy. It's just kind of, it's broken down. I want you to think about how you can restore that old house. Let's say it's a hundred-year-old house, farmhouse, but it's beautiful. It's got good bones, as they say, in the industry. And somehow you are going to restore this old house. Now, now, since we're using our imagination, money's no object. You'll be able to get what you need to restore this old house to its original condition and beauty. Except the problem is you, you never saw the house in its original state. And from what was left, you, you can visualize that it was very beautiful at one time. But how would you go about restoring it back to its original condition? You could face it off with limestone so that the weather-beaten wood shingles can't be seen. You could add several new rooms and possibly even enlarge and redecorate the existing basement, maybe. You could do all that. And you might possibly have a very beautiful home, but it would not be a restoration of the original. But let's suppose that you're fumbling around in the attic of this old home and you found it, the original blueprints. You got to kind of brush the dust and the cobwebs off of them, but you find them in a corner. And then and with the blueprints, you find some old, maybe black and white photos of, of the house when it was first built. And then suppose you set out to rebuild that old house according to the blueprints and according to the pictures of the original. And if you follow those plans in every detail with your contractor and you, and you finish the house just as it was in the photographs, what would you have as a result? You would have a complete restoration of that house, just as it was a hundred years before. So what about today? If we take the church as we find it today, as we think about what's in a name, we take the church after nearly 2,000 years of wear and tear and abuse and disuse from its people, and we try to reform it. We will never bring it back to its original simplicity and purity on our own efforts. Now, with those efforts, it might result in a beautiful ritual or a ceremony that the average individual thinks they want in a church, but you would not have the original New Testament church. On the other hand, and just as a side note, if in your hand you have your Bible or your Bible app, go ahead and just hold that up real quick. Who's, who's got it? You can have a Bible app. It's, put it up high. Let me see them. Don't let, let, there we go. All right. So on the other hand, you can take this plan book that you just lifted up, your blueprint, if you will, 
We can take this verbal picture of the early church and we can restore it to the original doctrines and ordinances and faith. The desires and the doctrine of men would be ignored. The Bible alone would furnish all the necessary details. And if this were done, what would be the result? We would find ourselves face to face with a first century church alive and functioning within our current society. Will you pray with me? Father God, as we come here this morning, as we look at what's in a name, as we look at your names, as we look at the name of your bride, the church, as we look at your word, I pray, Lord, that we will find in it what's required of us to be a reflection of your name, to be a reflection of your church, to be a reflection of your bride. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Admittedly, all this sounds really nice, but can it actually be done? Can we actually restore the church? In actual practice, it's possible to take the blueprint, the Bible, God's word, and restore the original New Testament church. Is that possible? Yes, it is. Now, to prove this, that it's possible, I want to share with you some historical instances where it actually happened. We're going to give a little history lesson today. In America, during the period from 1794 through 1835, there were six different groups that were organized without any knowledge of one another or the other group's existence. And in all six cases, and, and again, they didn't have internet, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have all the modern things. So in all six cases, they're scattered across America. The groups, as they restored the New Testament church, according to what is found in the pages of God's Word. And in every instance, in every case, they settled upon one of two things. The name Christian for their members and Christian church or Church of Christ for their congregations. Their baptism was by immersion for their mission of sins and the Lord's Supper was observed the first day of the week. All of this, and I want to reemphasize this, all of this came about without knowledge of the other groups. They weren't talking to each other. They were simply looking at the Word of God, simply looking at the Bible. How is this possible? The one common factor they had was the Bible as God's divinely inspired Word. And they made a concerted effort in these groups to to live out and to worship by that Word alone, by His name alone. The result is they all restored Christ's church in the same way Because they all had the same set of blueprints. Just as six different building contractors could take the blueprint of six of those same identical houses, and if they all had the same identical blueprint, they would build an exact house in six different locations. Likewise, these six groups were able to restore the original church in its faith and practice because they all had the same guidebook. They all focused on the same name. I want to share with you what these groups were really quickly, and we're going to to dig deep today. First off, the first effort happened in 1794. And this was a restoration of Christ Church. It began under the leadership of a man named James O'Kelly, a Methodist minister from Virginia. And under his direction, simply by following the Bible, several Methodist churches in in that state took upon themselves the name Christian only. Another one in 1801, a fellow named Abner Jones. You can't go wrong if you're named Abner Jones. I don't know what it is. I just kind of... I'm drawn to that. But in 1801, Abner Jones, who was a Baptist minister from Vermont and the New Hampshire area, he broke away from the Baptist church and he began an independent movement 
for the purpose of returning to the old paths, of following the New Testament. Elias Smith in Connecticut in 1807. Uh, he was another Baptist minister. He led his congregation into the New Testament position. And later in 1812, he and Abner Jones got together and they joined forces and they went on to establish congregations all around that area, calling themselves simply Christian. There's a lot of power in a name, brothers and sisters. And while those events were taking place in the east, out in the hills of Kentucky, a Presbyterian minister named Barton W. Stone was leaving the Cumberland Presbytery with his entire congregation simply because they chose to follow exactly what the Bible said. And in doing so, this group formed what became the Cane Ridge Christian Church. Now, there's a book written by Homer Haley. It's called Attitudes and Consequences. And he writes this. He says, these people were calling themselves Christians, rejecting human creeds, rejecting party names, appealing only to the Bible for their guidelines in faith and conduct. What's in a name? At the same time that Cane Ridge was happening, another a couple of men stepped up. Their names were Alexander and Thomas Campbell. They were a father and son, both of them Presbyterian ministers from Pennsylvania. And they, they broke from their denominational background and began organizing Christian churches throughout the state. And by 1832, the Campbell group, which by that time far outnumbered that of Stone, they, they united together uh, Kentucky churches to form the largest and fastest growing religious organization of that time, simply known as Christians. Now let it be known, again, their, their union was based on, on one simple thing. Their identical belief in the need and possibility of restoring the New Testament church according to God's word. There was one other movement. It was the sixth group to enter this growing stream. And it was that of Scot Scottish, Scotch Baptists of New York. Although they weren't as large as the others, the group also left denominational ties and sought out others holding the same New Testament position. And so what we have here are groups from Virginia, Vermont, New Hampshire, Kentucky, uh, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and New York, all across America. Uh, their leaders came from the Methodist Church, Baptist Church, Presbyterian, Scottish Baptist, all kinds of backgrounds, and all of them could unite, even though they were completely independent of each other, in their origin and their development, because they agreed upon the need for a restoration of the New Testament church. What's in a name? Now, you may be thinking, well, this is a nice little history lesson, John. Thanks. I learned something. But what does it have to do with a name? Especially, what does it have to do with one of the names of God? And I'm glad you asked that question. Because these examples of restoration happened because the men who led them believed indeed that God was Jehovah-Rohi. This name for God means the Lord is my shepherd. And we're going to talk about shepherds a little bit today. These men understood what David meant when he wrote the 23rd Psalm. We're going to look at that right now. The 23rd Psalm, most of you know it by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy, excuse me, goodness and loving kindness 
will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When you think about these men that I talked about, and you think about the name Jehovah-Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd. You think about what these men would have endured as they stood before their old denominations and proclaimed they would no longer agree to creeds written by men. They would no longer be directed in service by man's ideas, but simply by God's word. When you, when you think about that in contrast of what I just shared from the 23rd Psalm, it brings to light some new understandings when you read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Listen, when you, when you step out against a family belief or you step out against something that the world says we should be doing, you will have to depend on the Lord. He will provide your needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And the last part of verse 3 I love. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. These men that I talked about, when I mentioned their names, some of them are are what we call the founding fathers of the the, uh, restoration movement. They didn't do it so that their names would be written in our history books. They did it because the word of God and the name of God needed to be proclaimed properly. They, there, were, there were followings. They called them Stonites and Campbellites. And when those men were alive, they were like, no, it's not about following me. They made that redirection. They understood that with Jehovah-Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd. They understood God plus one is a majority. And they weren't concerned about what other people thought. They weren't afraid of tradition. Jehovah-Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd. They were no longer concerned or bound by that common phrase, because we've always done it this way. (laughs) They broke free from that. Because the Lord is our shepherd. And the shepherd provides. They would depend on the good shepherd to prepare their table. And because of him, their cup would indeed overflow. I just get goosebumps when I think about all the people that showed up in droves for these these restoration uh, times where they just they came because something true was being said. When you go back to the original blueprint, which is the word of God, you will never be disappointed. And now some of you are skeptics. You may be thinking again, those are good points, but you're talking about Old Testament stuff. And and you started out saying we should be a New Testament church and and you're trying to bring all this together. But what does the New Testament say about that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question as well. In John chapter 10, verses 7 through 18, Jesus has something to say about that. And he says this. So Jesus said to them again, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Again, Jesus saying about himself, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. 
and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. This next part is very important. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So God the Father has a name that is Jehovah-Rohi. The Lord is my shepherd. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, not only is God the Father our shepherd, but I am the good shepherd. I am the door for the sheep. And I know my own. And my own know me. Do you know him? But see, it doesn't stop there. After his resurrection, Jesus had a conversation with Peter on a beach. You may recall, he asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, I love you. And what did he say to Peter? Feed my sheep. Three different times he said, feed my sheep. He passed the mantle of shepherd onto Peter. And this is how it should be. This is God's intent. God never meant for the church to be a hierarchy here on earth with only one person in charge doling out jobs for everybody else. He never planned for a select few to perform all the ministry. He never intended for a certain couple of people to do all the teaching or all the counseling. And ever since the resurrected Lord looked at Peter on the shores of Galilee in John chapter 21, and he said to him, feed my sheep. There have been shepherds for his church, for his bride. There have been overseers of the church dedicated to the task of leading, feeding, and caring. So when you think about what's in a name, and you think about the name Jehovah-Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd, and you think about the name of Jesus where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and you think that Jesus passed that mantle of shepherding, of feeding sheep, of caring for others, he passed it on to the disciples who have now passed it on to us. Men like Peter and Paul, Timothy, James O'Kelly, Abner Jones, Elias Smith, Barton W. Stone, Alexander and Thomas Campbell, just to name a few. These men took the task of leading and feeding and caring for sheep of the Good Shepherd. And they took that task very seriously. And they depended on God. They depended on the Good Shepherd, on His provision, not their own. What's in a name? Jehovah-Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus, the good shepherd. What do shepherds do? They give love. They feed. They give encouragement. They discipline. They provide for the sheep. What's in a name? Barton Stone, Alexander Campbell. All these others I've talked about today, they took the call of being a spiritual shepherd seriously. I want you to know something that I think is unique. I planned this series last summer. I outlined most of this message. I don't think it's by coincidence that today is our yearly congregational meeting after church, after we have our worship time. 
And in this meeting, we're going to talk about some things, but you will have an opportunity to affirm shepherds for Huntsville Christian Church. They don't even know really what's about to happen. I just gave them a heads up. But at this time, I would like for our elders to go ahead and come forward this morning. Don't make me come get you. Just come, come right up here and just stand on this, this there, right in the middle, if you would, please. Just right here. Yeah, this is good. Hmm? Trust me, it's okay. It's, I won't hurt you. As they're coming forward, I also want you to, to look behind you. And I want to ask Peter Levy to stand up, if you would, real quick. Um, Kevin, Mike, and Frank, they're right here. Kevin, Frank, and Mike, depending on how you're looking at them. Um, Frank's, Frank's the one in the middle. They are your current elders. Um, Kevin and his family are moving away from us soon. And that, that makes us sad, but it's okay because he has work to do in other places. Uh, Mike is up for affirmation of another term of service here as an elder at Huntsville Christian Church. And Peter in the back, Peter Levy, is also on our ballot for your affirmation. And I wanted to present these men to you today for one specific reason. Sometimes shepherding people is a lot like herding cats. It's not easy. I I love all of you, but sometimes it's just not easy. And so what I want to ask of you as we begin our response time, I want you all to go ahead and stand up. And I want you to begin praying for your shepherds today. And I'm going to make it easy on you. Um, If you're not sure what to pray, pray for Kevin and his family as they relocate to another place to serve. As he serves our country and as he serves the Lord wherever he goes. Pray for Frank and Mike and Peter and the decisions that will be made today. But I want you to group up just in groups of three or four. So find somebody that you know or don't know. But I want you to just take a moment and and we're going to pray for these men. These men have been asked to feed Jesus' sheep. And those who feed spiritually are called shepherds in the Christian church. It's funny. They're not given the title of like illustrious potentate or prince of the church. These men are given one of the most important jobs in the church to spiritually feed us. And they're called elders. They're called shepherds. The same name that was given to the the first men to see and worship baby Jesus. Shepherds. It's the same name that's given to the men who will lead and feed and be a reflection to his church. Let's just pause and pray for them now. I'd like for you all, like I said, just group up and take a minute and pray out loud for these men. And then pray for wisdom and discernment as they lead. And pray also that we will, and this is the one nobody wants to do, but pray that we will submit and be accountable to them. And in just a moment, I'll close out our time of prayer.
Father God, we come before you this morning as a congregation, knowing that you are the good shepherd, knowing that you are our provider. We thank you for the men that have stood up here this morning who have been elders, who will continue to be elders, who will possibly be elders. And Lord, we just ask that you bless them with wisdom and discernment, that their focus will be on you as they lead your bride, as they lead your sheep, as they feed us, as they love us, as they encourage and and even discipline. But Lord, we just ask that um, as a whole, we can honor you. I pray that as members of this flock, we will be an encouragement to them. We'll be accountable to them and they to us. I thank you for the examples that you've given throughout your word, the blueprint of what a successful church looks like. And as we strive to be that, I pray that we'll follow your direction and your lead. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Don't go too far, guys. As we continue our response time this morning, will you consider how you will respond to the name of God in your life? He's the good shepherd. He provides. Maybe your response is that you'll follow him wherever he leads. And for you, maybe that starts with baptism for the forgiveness of your sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The baptistry is ready. Maybe your response is that you also uh, are, are concerned or, or considering how to be a shepherd, how to be involved, someone who gives care to the flock in some way. The elders are here, and you've just prayed for them. And let me tell you, they would love to pray with you about that. But whatever your response is this morning, will you sing our response song with us and respond to God accordingly?